Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. Hello and welcome to another Wessex LMCs podcast. My name is Dr Laura Edwards. I'm a GP and one of the Joint Chief Executives at Wessex LMCs. And I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Dr Cora Sargent today. Good morning, Cora. Good morning. Thanks so very much for inviting me. It's a great honour. Thank you. You're very welcome. We we decided to have a conversation, didn't we, about something that's that's really topical um, and that's also really dear to your heart. So um, thank you for joining us. Um, so Dr. Cora Sudden, I'm invited today because uh, she is a, an educational psychologist and a senior training fellow at the University of Southampton. Um, and they, it, it, this is a, a teaching around uh, the gender research group. That's your that's your um, work, isn't it? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. So, uh, so Dr. Sarah Wright and I, we run the EP Gender Research Group there. Um, we teach largely on the doctorate in educational psychology, uh, teaching people how to be educational psychologists, which is a huge honor and just wonderful to get to spend time with such sort of enthusiastic, intelligent, wonderful folks who are passionate about uh interestingly passionate about gender diversity and lgbt plus issues more broadly and so sarah and i uh, invited a bunch of folks to join us in conducting their thesis projects around the topic of gender diversity in some way and we've been doing that for five or so years now and we've seen i think around 11 trainees so far join the gender research group um, and we've conducted you know, a good deal of research projects, a good few of which have now reached publication and a bunch more are in press. Um, and it has meant that we've been able to sort of join a community of researchers who are engaged in modern research around gender diversity, trying to understand the answers to, I think, two really big questions. One of which is, you know, what genders is it possible for a person to be in the world? And what makes a person the gender that they are? And those two questions have kind of informed this new wing of research, which is trying to, trying to, I think, what it is revealing. I don't think it's trying to do anything because you know, research doesn't, it doesn't presuppose any kind of answer. We ask deliberately research questions to which we don't know the answer. Um, but I think what it is finding is that gender is just bigger than male and female. Excellent. Thank you. Yes. And I think uh, it, it is absolutely fascinating when you start kind of scratching the surface of this. And we're, we're going to do get below that a little bit today. And and you yourself, Cora, you're, you're transgender. Are you able to tell us a little bit about your journey, please? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm trans. Hello, everyone. Uh, I came out when I was like in my late 20s. I must have come out when I was 28. My GP was wonderful. She just was like, I have no idea what I'm doing but we're going to find out together what to do. And, and we did. And I was sent off to the gender identity clinic in London. And I had, uh, had you know, two psychiatrists who I was engaged with there. Um, for those who don't know, like uh, gender identity development services, gender identity clinics are very, very sort of rooted in, um, in psychology. I, I've rooted in kind of, I think, without getting too deep into it, a lot of my experience of working with those services has been around making sure that I am who I think I am. And they needed, you know, I saw three psychiatrists, one at a, 
at a sort of mental health clinic before I was even permitted to go to see uh, mental health services, to to see the gender identity services. Yeah. Yeah. But the gender identity services, you know, a lot of it was built around the idea of asking me questions, very personal, very invasive questions about checking that I am who I think I am really, and that there's not a better explanation somewhere else. So I think, you know, a lot of my experience, a lot of the experience of, I think, other people who are trans is that it is hard to be believed, that it is hard to get access to the services we need. And I think that's the battleground we find ourselves in now, is that access to healthcare for the trans community, for children, young people, uh, for adults is appallingly bad, really bad. Like, yeah. And you mean, and you mean, yes, this is the identity clinic themselves, really, isn't it? And that whole transitioning sort of Absolutely. opportunity and journey. I think, I think, yes, we, it, that has been in the media, and and I, I, I lose track of the time, but they they had to kind of shut it, didn't they? Because actually, it had just and looking at it, it had got overwhelmed. When you looked at the numbers, it's got overwhelmed, and then it's not, it's yes. no longer fit for purpose, it's no longer safe. Um, yes, so I mean, it's. it's- it is interesting that that has happened because, you know, 10, 12 years ago when we were engaged in the research for the first time, you could see that the retrospective studies were revealing a weirdness in that adults were saying on, you know, the majority of adults were finding that they knew that something was up around the age of seven or something, like the average age of seven. And you could see in these sort of like, it was all retrospective work because there were no children, young people to ask but when you asked adults, they knew when they were children. So we knew that there was many more children and young people that hadn't yet come forward. They should come forward. They, they, we knew that they were likely to, but um, we didn't invest in those services early enough. And then they became overwhelmed when those children and young people came forward. I think we've got a strange kind of situation now where there's a sort of a, a public perception, maybe that this rise in the number of children and young people mm. coming forward is indicative of like a response to that social uh, sort of engagement with the trans community and support for the trans community socially. And therefore, children and young people are coming forward because they're like, oh, it's actually okay to be trans, which in a sense they are. But when we look at people like Professor Greta Bauer's work, we find that it, you know, people who come to their recognition of their gender uh, a little later in adolescence, for example, those young people don't have necessarily more sort of social support from friends or more gender support from parents or from friends. So what we're finding is that, you know, uh, what is likely happening, I think in the literature is sort of outing in a bunch of different ways, is that children and young people are finding that the world is more supportive. And so those kids who are trans are finding it more possible for them to come out. And that's actually a wonderful thing. But our services and support systems didn't anticipate that there were this many young people that might need support, even though I think had we thought very proactively, maybe had we been in a a situation where there was a lot of investment in the NHS and more sort of drive for investment in these services, um, we might have been able to follow that early research and say, okay, we're anticipating there's going to be this big change in the children and people who might need uh, services and support. Um, and invest in those services early. But um, sadly, we find ourselves in a situation where, yeah, we're, we're talking a long, a long waiting list for these services. 
Um, We're playing catch up, aren't we? And and these are not easy, easy decisions because it's a it's a big it's a big commitment, isn't it? It's a big commitment, and um, I guess there's a there's a balance to be struck, isn't there, between ch- checking whether somebody is truly making that decision in the right way versus it being seen as, as you use the word in, invasive um, questions that actually it becomes a set of barriers that are really are really hard to 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 get over um, yes that's such a I good think, point it's, it, yeah. it's you know the people uh, the folks in those services I, I mean i've worked with the gender identity development service running trainings and yeah. things in, in schools that you know uh, i've seen them do trainings and i've run trainings at the same events and they're brilliant they're absolutely yes. brilliant they've come into schools uh, with children i've been working with they've come and done like they've talked to school staff and things like that which is just wonderful i have just the deepest of respect for these services. And I think they're very good at that kind of watchful waiting, those kind of like finding a way to ask those kinds of questions with children, young people. So I don't think the, I mean, I talking from my own experience, I'm not sure that the problem is, you know, when children get into those services, yeah. whether those services are appropriate. I think the problem is like getting kids into those services to begin with so that they can have those conversations. I think those conversations are hard currently for GPs to have with children and people. I don't know if GPs should be in the position of of trying to gatekeep those services, really. Um, so that'd be a very difficult position to put a GP into, I would think. To say, yes, you know, absolutely. And again, when people are having difficult conversations, what they what they often value the most is time to have them. Yes, and a GP yes. appointment, uh, again, it, we are not in a system where where time is something we are able to easily give. And again, we we, <laughs> we can align ourselves very much with what has been said there about the services being overwhelmed, having good people in the services, but those good people not being able to meet the needs simply because there are too, too many uh, clients versus the resources, i.e. them as individuals there to, to meet those needs. Gen- general practice sees that um, <laughs> and feels that as well. Although, again, it doesn't appear sometimes that can get lost in the media. Um, yes. And and it's, it's said general practice and GPs are not good, uh, whereas actually it's no, they are good. There's just not enough of them. Um, yes. And I think an analogy we've, we've discussed before is um, you can have a boat. It's a really well-made boat but if you put if it's a boat made for five people and you put a hundred people on top of that boat it will it will sink it, it may well yes. sink um and and that's the situation that that you know you're in not not the fault of kind of either any of the people in that situation or the boat itself um and i think gps and probably the the gender identity services would would identify <laughs> um uh, with that scenario which is um really sad and frustrating for everybody in, involved in it um can i ask you you know again from your perspective and your dual perspective personally and professionally how how what have you noticed about gender in society from your from your vantage point i mean so it's it's one of the things that i guess the questions that we ask about what genders exist in the world what gender is it possible for a person to be you know we as a society sort of answer those questions quite intuitively i think and uh, and we can ponder how we do that often at birth you know when we essentially look down and we and we make an assignment on the basis of a child's kind of appearance on 
and we really only have two options to choose from. I mean, to the extent that I had a GP who I I once was talking to uh, in one of these trainings, and he was telling me about a, a time when he was the person who was delivering a child, and he you know he held the child up and he looked down, and that child, to his mind, to his language, had ambiguous genitalia, so there was no like, and he was in a sort of held in a moment of pause because he he didn't know quite how to manage that situation because you know there's really only two genders in his mind and which gender this child could be appropriately assigned was impossible to tell in that moment and the hesitation was so tense in that moment as short an experience as it must have been but as long as it seemed to him one of the nurses scooped up the baby wrapped it up handed it parents to say congratulations it's a girl sort of made the assignment for him on in that moment just kind of just to kind of ease i don't know and he just i remember him talking to me about this experience and he was just like i i didn't know what to do with myself in that moment Mm. and and who knows where it led but in that moment there's the evidence of like even though we we know that differences of sexual development are a thing even though we're aware that there are lots of experiences of gender identity outside of like male and female. You know, we can talk about the transgender community in a more binary sense, but there are non-binary gender fluid communities. There are as many experiences of gender as there are people almost. And yet we have this very strict kind of binarized assignment system at birth. And that works for like the vast majority of people, don't get me wrong, but it doesn't work for everyone. And that sort of that that assignment, as strict as it is, it's not as if we say at that assignment, like, congratulations, it's a girl, but at some point you're gonna have to ask them, right? There's no provisionality to the assignment. It's kind of deterministic. And you can see that in society too. Like you walk through society. I went to a restaurant the other week and I was heading to the bathrooms and they had six cubicles all single toilet cubicles. Three of them were male cubicles and three of them were female cubicles. You know, you think even even in even when there's only single cubicles and there's nobody else like you have there's still that desire to kind of keep male and female cubicles separate to one another and make sure that men don't go in the female cubicles and females don't go in the male cubicles. And you know, when you have babies, you paint the nursery and there's colors that are male colors and colors that are female colors and it's you know names and language and pronouns and, you know, and uh, clothes and toys and toilets and changing rooms and schools. We have boys and girls and girls schools and we have uh, school uniforms and you know, we could go on for days. And we've talked about the, the challenge of when you go to your GP, I go to my GP and the first thing that I do is I hit this, this cool little computer system, touchscreen computer system. And the first thing it asks me is, are you male or female? There's no third option. There's no, you know, and which I have to press is the one that's the marker on my medical records, because of course it's trying to identify who I am to be able to, to be able to book me in. So it's like, there's a whole society that's built up as Bragg, uh, Reynolds, Ringrose and Jackson kind of described in 2018, they were describing for children, and young people, but I think it's the case for all of us gender binary choices are frequently inevitable. We're sort of pushed to make a choice about like 
to, to assign ourselves into the gender that, you know, that, that we then can inhabit the world as because the world expects us to inhabit it as either male or female. And if you don't inhabit it in either of those places easily, you frequently run into difficulty. And that is the challenge that we find, I think, is that that as diverse and wonderful as, as the sort of the spectrum of gender is and the people who inhabit different places on the gender spectrum, what we find is that their experiences are unified by a, a difficulty with finding belonging in a world that doesn't easily like make room for them. So the, the work that we have been doing with children and young people, with adults, has been around trying to understand and then to, to advocate for changes to the world that might enable us to make it easy for everyone to find a place to belong. And that might include maybe a little bit of, I think it's Kristen Sandberg, I think, UN Convention uh, Committee of the Rights of the Child, UNCRC, and Professor Carrie Piketer from Nottingham. They talk about something broadly similar, which is that you know, children have a right to non-discrimination, to identity, to health, and they have a right to be heard in proceedings that affect them. And Carrie Piketer like, crystallizes that by saying maybe attribution at birth for all children should be somewhat provisional. And perhaps like the world that we have built, we could adapt to make sure that, you know, these uh, people who feel like their gender is different to those bi that binary assignment in some way. Like we should make it a sort of possible for them to exist in the world without running into those sort of implicit barriers uh, that sort of imply that, oh, you're not, you know, we didn't design this world with you in mind. Gosh, yeah, that's a big thought. You're right. Having from, from where we are now to there would be would be a shift, wouldn't it? Because as you say, it's it's so entrenched in nearly all of our daily interactions. Um that to, but but I, I get your point. Do we know how many, like roughly what percentage of the population feel that they are more gender fluid than the binary system that we currently have? That's a, that's a cracking question and a very difficult question to answer. Um, the reason being that it's very difficult to ask people because we have a world that is kind of discriminatory. So as soon as you ask people, people won't really tell you necessarily. And of course, when you're talking about like children and young people, we don't teach children and young people about sort of modern theories of gender. So, you know, we're using language that young people don't necessarily have or that they've kind of developed online. And there's like very different forms of language out there and experience. So, you know, it's very difficult to ask. When it comes to the sort of transgender population, something like 0.6% of the population um, when we're talking transgender, gender non-conforming, maybe up to 1.7% of the population. Um, but uh, but like the estimates range pretty heavily. Uh, there are some US studies very recently that have been finding that you know, young people, a lot of young people identify on the LGBT plus spectrum, um, sort of more than once, uh, once was the case. And it seems to be on the rise, but it's very difficult to know exactly you know exactly what's happening and and uh i think the challenge is that you're asking for self-report from a community that's experienced marginalization so 
you're going to run into difficulties. And also there's a kind of blend, isn't there? We're still in a period of change, I think. So as you've described, our society is um, made up of a mixture of people who have very different vantage points. And I think it's been shown in the research again, you know, more than me, but it's been shown that um, different age groups have quite different feelings around being able to sort of um, accept uh, gender diversity as a as a notion, a concept. Uh, again, if, if they're one of their friends, you know, did something, how would they feel? I think is a question that has been posed, um, as in they came yeah. out as a different kind of gender. And um, the younger generation, they're almost a bit like, oh, did you say you had brown eyes? Oh, you've got blue eyes. Okay. <laughs> you know, what? it's that kind of thing. Whereas the older age groups, they would find that really challenging for the reasons that you described of actually not that long ago, because we're still young, um, over in the 1980s, um, then, you know, there was a really different culture that we were growing up in about how, how this kind of stuff was, was discussed yeah. and treated. And, and again, you've, you've still got quite a lot of that society who are in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, which make up a large proportion of our, um, culture and society. Um, so again, if you're you, all of that will kind of be threading through, won't it? Because those people are in young people's families; those are their parents or their grandparents. Um, and again, that will influence sort of how they how they make their decisions. We we know that parents influence um, decision making in children, um, and uh, and how comfortable they feel. And again, I think young people also they experiment, don't they? This is a label. And sometimes they'll they'll try a label on all sorts of different ones so in the clothing they wear to the friends that, that, that they hang out with. And, and I guess gender can be in that. For some people, it's not an experiment. It is actually what they feel. But for some people, they'll they'll think, oh, I'm not sure. I'll, I'll, I'll think about that and I'll have that in my mind space for a bit and see whether that is or isn't part of my identity. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I think <clears throat> I think there's some there. I think. In the 1980s, you know, and probably from the 60s and beyond, the sort of notion of gender schema theory was that gender was something that you learned, right? Somebody would tell you at some point, oh, you're a boy or you're a girl, and you'd have role models in your environment, in your family, in the public eye, that you would learn about what boys do in the world, what they're like, or what girls do in the world and what they're like, and you'd learn which one you were, and and then you'd conform to that kind of mode of being in the world, that your sort of <clears throat> identity would be constructed from that experience. And so we had a view that you know, it's important that people have good male and female role models to make sure that they understand what gender they are and what that gender does in the world. But over time, we've come to challenge that view. I mean, even in the, in the 1980s, Sandra Bem, you know, starting to uh, with her amazing feminist research, started to get this idea that maybe masculinity and femininity were kind of two separate spectra and people could be high on both or low on both or sort of cross-identified. And it's actually, they're all sort of legitimate ways of being in the world. Um, and a bunch of other researchers were sort of saying, well, these sort of rarer places are associated with negative kind of mental health outcomes. So maybe they're evidence of pathology but actually, I think uh, you know, in our more recent work, we're finding that the reason why these sort of rarer spaces are associated with poorer mental health outcomes is because they are marginalized, <laughs> because they experience prejudice and because they're marginalized and sort of kind of uh, makes it's sense. Not, really. It's not the state itself. It's the reaction to the state. Yes. By external. Yes, exactly. Practice. Yeah. 
exactly yeah as we described you know, a world not designed with with gender diverse folks in mind you know it's hard to find a sense of belonging mental health is going to be impeded um but so our our recent work you know in the community more broadly like a professor uh is that professor doctor professor so christine olsen celine gilgos um absolute legends um, in the field have been doing some really important work in the States um, and has been, have been kind of highlighting that, that children who are engaged in some kind of social transition, you know, who like explore the world and who are supported to transition a bit younger and those who go on to transition a bit later. I think what we find is that what, impels transition is a more extreme feeling the act of transition doesn't shape that feeling to become more extreme so i think i mean it's fairly early work really all this stuff is only in the last five years but i in my reading of this literature i think we can feel fairly okay with the idea that children and young people are going to experiment they're going to wonder about their experience and that that's kind of okay. You know, it's, it's a part of growing up, as you describe. You know, they people are sort of pondering where they fit in the world and and that's all right. And then there are going to be a group of children and young people in there who are transgender, who, who are kind of gender diverse, and who might need sort of support at some point, uh, like to think about their gender and to ponder the the possibilities of you know, whatever support for transition is out there for them. But that we as a kind of community, as a sort of culture, we don't we don't need to police what children and young people do around their gender because we don't need to be afraid that it will make them trans. Right? Like we used to have in the 1980s similarly, I think that's why we had Section 28 was this notion that, you know, if we advocate these kind of these gay lifestyles to kids, they're going to become gay. And we don't want that. So we're going to prevent people from advocating for like sexual diverse lifestyles, right? We're not we're going to prevent people from, from saying that it's okay to be gay. And, and of course, we moved away from that culturally. It took a great deal of effort and pain to get to a point where we now realize that you can't raise a child straight. You can't raise a child gay. They are what they are. They discover their sexuality over time. It's not a process of creation, it's a process of discovery. And I think with gender identity, we are getting there gradually too, recognizing that kids are going to explore their gender, they're going to ponder where they fit, but it's more a process of discovery than a process of creation. That's a really powerful uh, sentiment there to, to to end on. So we've we've come to the end of our time, Cora, and um, and I think that's a really helpful thing for us all to hear. Though again, when people come to us potentially as GPs and and have that conversation, is is to be able to hold them uh, with that. Um, our job isn't to police, and actually. Um, it's um our our job is to is to to be there and and listen isn't it but actually by being supportive and being affirmative then we're unlikely to be um tipping people into a place they don't want to go they don't actually want to go um and and just to kind of like put put a sort of uh uh exclamation point on that point particularly 
we find that just chosen name and pronoun use like alleviates anxiety, alleviates depression. It improves kind of it improves the mental health outcomes for people in the short term. Just chosen name and pronoun use. Dr. Rubes J. Walsh wrote in The Psychologist, for you psychology folks out there, the BPS, uh, she wrote, when children want to explore a social transition, the potential for harm in letting them choose clothes, pronouns, even a name that make them feel comfortable is dwarfed by the harm of stopping them and undermining their identity. I think that's a gorgeous quote. I love that. And I think that's really, really powerful and really helpful uh, for those of us who might have someone come for the first time and talk um, and again, worry about their child potentially. That is actually a really, really useful summary, a really useful statement um, to hold in mind that it's okay to experiment and then see what happens. And if it's going to be a particular way, it will become more and more obvious and just being supportive and allowing that person to explore that journey and what it means for them um, and the importance of it to them, things will become clearer, won't it? And and being supportive means that they come to the right conclusion for them uh, as an individual of whatever their life's journey is going to look like. Yeah. Excellent. Right. Well, thank you so much for exploring that with us today, Cora. There is so much we could talk about. We really enjoyed having you today for this conversation. Thank you very much, Cora. Thank you so very much for having me. You're very welcome. Take care, everyone. Goodbye. Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice.